welcome back to the Taproot Podcast. I'm Liz Haswell. And I'm Ivan Baxter. We hope you are ready for some navel-gazing, because today's episode gets pretty deep, pretty fast. Our discussion centers on the concepts of efficiency and robustness, and the ways that they are often in conflict. This framing has wide-ranging application, from plant biology, duh, to lab organization to the global economy. And, in keeping with this season's theme, finding a new normal, we discuss these ideas in the context of the pandemic and how we might keep applying them even now. One programming note, we are taking a break for the holidays, but we'll be back in January with three more episodes. So without any further delay, let's get started. Olivier Hamant. He is a PI at INRA in the Plant Reproduction and Development Laboratory located in Lyon, France. Olivier did his PhD on Knox homeobox genes. Uh, in, that was in 2003, and then did uh, two back-to-back postdocs, one in Berkeley with Zach Candy and one um, in Lyon with Jan Tross. He took his current position there in 2012, where he works on the mechanobiology of development. Olivier has received a huge number of awards in recent years. Um, I wanted to mention uh, his recent award called the Prix Foulon from the French Science Academy, which he received in 2020. Welcome to the Taproot, Olivier. Thank you for having me. Thank you for thank you for joining us. Today's paper is a comment entitled "Plants Show Us the Light," published in Trends in Plant Science in 2020. Olivier, can you give us a short summary of this paper? Sure. So uh, the idea is uh, when you look at uh, photosynthesis, uh, the yield is very low. It's less than one uh, percent. So you have you have to wonder why uh, photosynthesis is so inefficient. And so there's been this uh, paper in uh, like two years ago now that showed that the reason why photosynthesis is so inefficient, it's because photosynthesis is has been selected to um, to match a fluctuating environment, fluctuating light, uh, fluctuation inside the cell, and for this there's only one solution is uh, basically to absorb light in the red and in the blue, and to reflect the rest. So there's a lot of waste. A lot of wasted energy and so the the i guess the take-home message at the end of this is that during evolution uh, living systems like plants build uh, their capacities uh, based on fluctuation and not on performance or efficiency this is such an interesting uh article that you were discussing um i love it because i've actually taught this question in my class like asking them why are plants green and why don't they absorb in the green and the answer that we've i've always used in the past red light has very long wavelengths and blue light has really high energy and those are two good things so you either capture lots of high energy photons or you capture long wavelengths but the stuff the green light doesn't have either of those benefits but it sounds like this is a completely different um, explanation 
I guess it's not mutually exclusive. I mean, what, what they show in that article, which is, I mean, uh, yeah, quantum physics, huh? so that's beyond my pay grade. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what they show is that uh, if you wanted photosynthesis to be at the maximum of efficiency, uh, the photon uh, capture would have to be uh, stable. I mean, the photon flux would have to be stable. Whereas it's never the case, right? right. Uh, light is uh, fluctuating uh, and also the cells are fluctuating. So there's only one solution, at least based on that paper, is to absorb in the red, absorb in the blue. Mm -hmm. And that way you allow all these uh, fluctuations. So does that, do you think that means that we can't engineer photosynthesis to be better? So there are projects about this, uh, about improving yes. photosynthesis, but I indeed ag agree that that's probably a bad idea to try to, <laughs> to make it more efficient. There will be um, ex well, negative externalities, for sure. I mean, we know already that plants are doing everything they can not to burn their leaves, right? I mean, there's already some uh, pigments that dissipate the excess of energy. Uh, and if, even if you look at uh, photosynthesis, I mean, the light capture is only one element of it, right? So there's also downstream, uh, Rubisco is the typical incoherent uh, enzyme, but still it's, it's the best we have, right? Because uh, it's so inefficient that, it's, uh, that it allows the fixation of uh, nitrogen, right? So this is all, it's, it's a multi-component system, like uh, everything in, uh, in biology. So the, if you make something more efficient in one corner, you're going to have some problems in other parts of your system. Why you would want to, to engineer photosynthesis and, and, and make it more efficient is that in our crops, it's already a, a very artificial system as opposed to the natural systems where, where the bulk of evolution happened. And so if we, if we are sort of agreed that we're going to put these very carefully, carefully controlled is a strong word, but uh, fields or things, you know, then, then you have set up the system that you're already doing enough artificial stuff. And so you, 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 if you can make it more efficient, it, it, it may work as well. So my, my take on this is uh, that uh, right now, these kind of systems, uh, I mean, these agro systems, they work, uh, but they won't sustain for too long, uh, simply because, I mean, that, that's why I focus so much on fluctuation. So when you, when you look at the um, environmental uh, reports, either uh, IPCC or anything else, basically, the main take-home message is that the world is going to become uh, turbulent. Uh, fluctuations are going to increase. So what we should uh, build is um, uh, agro systems that are able to sustain themselves in a fluctuating um, world. And for this, the more you have a system that is dependent on control, the more fragile it becomes. So as I was reading your article, I was thinking about this word efficiency, which has a very specific use when we're talking about photosynthetic efficiency, but I couldn't help thinking about a um, conflict between robust human behavior and productive human behavior. Do you know what I mean? Like we, when we human systems can be very productive, they can make a lot of stuff, but they're often not very efficient. Actually, a great example of that is the whole supply chain fiasco that the world just went through where I guess in a way you could think that those uh, systems are super efficient because they were making sure that there was never any supplies like stacking up anywhere. Everything was always being shipped um, at a moment's notice to where it was needed. But then as soon as there's some disturbance in the 
force, <laughs> then the supply chain just completely fell apart. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely, absolutely. Exactly, that's actually, the idea is that when you optimize something, you weaken it. So the more you optimize the system, the more the systems becomes weak. Uh, so you talk about supply chain, that's a typical example. You, the, the Suez uh, channel was a typical example right? where you have these uh, big boats that are super efficient, right? <laughs> and the minute they go oblique in the channel, then that's it. So that's another case where, where you optimize transport in the, in the Suez Canal. So you, you transport a lot of goods through the shortest path. But the minute you have these big boats in the wrong orientation, then that's it. You're, <laughs> you're done. <laughs> And, and it's true and it's true for uh, pretty much everything i mean we we uh, as a human society we've put a lot of weight on uh, performance which i define as the sum of efficacy and efficiency efficacy reaching your objective and efficiency with the least amount of means so it's really like to be you know straight to the goal <laughs> and so if if you look at everything around uh, yeah terrorism supply chains um, even the way we sometimes do uh, science education everything is optimized uh, engineering is becoming really like uh, the the job for everything right from uh, electronics to uh, didactics right so they are engineering in every single system so we always do, we want to increase uh, performance everywhere but we don't always ask the question of uh, robustness. There are a few places where we ask the question of robustness. For instance, it's in uh, robotics or sometimes in the digital world where the question of robustness is, uh, is prevalent. But overall, we tend to believe that uh, performance increments are always positive. And we are actually at the stage where we can see that performance increments become starts start to be negative. Interesting. I have to say, I find this ironic coming from you, since you are such a productive and efficient scientist. <laughs> I wonder, are you do do you feel like you're balanced on the edge of um, something? You're so productive that you're losing robustness. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone here is, we, we are all driven, right, by uh, a passion and, and something. Uh, but I guess one trick to uh, not fall into the, the, you know, the performance increments uh, all the way to the burnout is to uh, diversify. So if you, if you do several things that are quite different, then you know you're never going to be, you know, at the top of your game in uh, every single field. So it sort of, you know, <laughs> balances things out a little bit. And this is true as well for biological systems, actually. Yeah? So biological systems, when they are uh, challenged with uh, resource scarcity, when they are really challenged, they usually diversify. So it's also a way to, um, yeah, I don't know, to, to counteract uh, rebound effects or like the negative effects of uh, high performance actually. It's always to diversify. Give us an, give us an example of that. So for this, I, I can take the example of uh, soil, for instance, in soil, uh, the um, little animals like the decomposers and everything. So the soil is a rich environment, right? And because the soil is rich, usually these uh, small animals are uh, reproducing asexually. So in terms of uh, genetic diversity, it's not so much. But when the, the soil becomes poor, when the resources are becoming scarce, those animals switch to sexual reproduction. Then you mix the genes and you increase the diversity. And this is true for uh, most ecosystems. Of course, you'll find exceptions. But usually, when there's a challenge, you uh, diversify. We humans, we do exactly the opposite, right? So we are facing uh, resource scarcity. 
energy materials metals and what we do is to try to make uh, energy production more efficient and this is exactly the wrong way to go because when we do this actually what happens is that in the short term we gain some uh, performance those technologies become more attractive we buy more we consume more at the end the global consumption of resources is increasing so we should learn from the living systems and diversify instead of becoming more efficient so um what is your what is your like diversifying activity i think it might be music <laughs> yeah it goes all the way to music so i mean even in my team huh? so our, our team is i mean my my, my team I, I say our team because now it's a multi-pi team huh? as uh, often in france uh, so we have different subjects so i mean part of it is the role of mechanical signals in uh, development that's the core aspect of the team but uh, Charlotte Kirchelle has joined the team. So now there's the idea of the cell edges linked with mechanical signals, which I think is super exciting. So but that's also taking the team to a slightly different direction. And there are also people in the team working on more uh, science and society questions. So it's one project on uh, SPELT with local farmers. So I can tell you that this is taking a very, very different direction compared to the rest of the team, of course, but very exciting project as well. There's another student uh, working on uh, polar trees. So trees that you cut, you know, midway, and then they make these big heads, like, uh, you know, because of extra proliferation. So there are some mechanical uh, aspects to it, but there's also some uh, citizen science uh, associated with that, because people use this to have biomass in winter, for instance, or these kind of things. And there's a third project, uh, so just to tell you the extent of the it's very eclectic. Uh, there's a third project on uh, biosourced metamaterials. So basically, we, uh, so it's with uh, Thomas Dehou uh, in physics, where uh, actually he found that if you take an onion and uh, some peels, an onion peel, basically, uh, these peels have uh, phononic properties. So it means that they, they let uh, many acoustic waves go through, but they can filter some specific acoustic waves. And so this is what uh, some rare metals are uh, doing in your smartphone, for instance. So the idea would be that you change this with a biosourced material. So this is for the team. And then, of course, you have this music. As, uh, yeah. So we're going to have onion cell walls in our cell phones. That's Is that what you just said? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the idea. <laughs> that's pretty <laughs> so cool. So of course, it's <laughs> well, sure. that's... very upstream research, yeah, right? That's but, uh... cool. Yeah. Very cool. So, so I, I think this is, a, this is a really interesting topic because you, you, you know, we do talk about labs. And, well, that lab is so efficient. They just put out the papers they get the grants and they you know and and we talk about it and i feel like that's often used as a as a compliment by people who want to ignore all the terrible toxic culture stuff that happens in labs that are super efficient um but i do think it's 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 really interesting to me that you say you have this very diverse team that's all working um and I guess I, when I think about robustness, one of the things I think about is what happens, uh, especially you know, in 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 a science lab, uh, is what happens when you lose someone who is like the one person who can do something. And I, I really, you know, so as you were talking about all these people and this diverse team, and I, part of me said like, well, what if somebody decides to you know become a full time musician and you know and leaves what ha you know do, do, does do you just drop that project and it's 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 gone but you got this diverse stuff so that's okay 
or or you know how how do you decide what's an essential project to keep going when you've got all these 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 different approaches true no that's a, that's a good question so i mean usually the the project we have are highly collaborative so that means that one person in the team is collaborating with many people outside of the team so the i guess the robustness is a bit uh, external as well so it's a, it's a network of uh, of collaborators but i agree that uh, I, I don't know so if someone was living the, la the team and with a very specific project, probably that project will leave the team and maybe something else would, would go. So I mean, it's I guess it's diversity in time as well, right? So we are open to uh, changing subjects uh, in the team. I mean, there's, there's a core on mechanical signals where there are several people who can do similar, similar type of things. So there's sort of a, a core, let's say, <laughs> uh, know-how in the, in the team. But the more peripheral projects are a bit more, uh, yeah, open to change some of this is sort of built into the french system this idea that you have a lab there's going to be mul there's going to be multiple pis with small labs it is is my external view of how the french system works is that you end up with these research institutes that have lots of small groups and there is core funding so you always can keep that going but you're also it's very hard to get really large grants and really scale up and so i don't think you get many large labs in the in the french system um, you did your your postdoc in the u.s so you were sort of exposed to our system can you sort of contrast for us you know when thinking about this efficiency versus robustness contrast what you know where do you see the two systems what the benefits and the drawbacks of those two systems so it's indeed uh, it's an interesting comparison. So I mean, when I uh, went to the US, uh, the first world that I thought about was trust. There's a lot of trust in the US. I mean, in uh, in the, I mean in the teams, huh? of course, in the scientific teams. I mean, when, when you do research, uh, I felt completely you know free to do what I want. Uh, I could pursue some ideas. No one would say, "Well, that's crazy. Stop it." You know, it was just the opposite, right? Go for it. Go crazy. Uh, try it. You know. Go for it, which I think in France we have less of that culture. It's more a culture of constraint, I would say. So that to say, well, I mean, it's good if you do this. It's good if you do this, but uh, have you thought about that? Uh, but there's also that person that is doing this, so maybe you should, you know, uh, do it a little bit differently. So I mean, there's that general philosophy, which is actually also beyond science. We the problem of trust. I mean, trust is a problem in France. I would say it's more constraint, less trust. That is so interesting. Yeah, I, I would. I mean, that, for me, that's really, uh, yeah, it's actually in, in French, it's uh, confiance for trust and contrainte for constraint. <laughs> they almost look the same in French, confiance, contrainte, but it's very two different, uh, two different things. So that, that's the general philosophy. But then uh, on the positive side, uh, what I like about the French system is, well, the fact that we have permanent positions which means that you can uh, do risky projects and no one is going to judge you for it. I mean, no one is going to value you for it as well, but at least you can go, right? <laughs> you can you can try it. Right. And the, the flip side of this is that usually because you have Fermat position, uh, we work a lot as a multi-PI team. So indeed, uh, one PI as a small team, but PI usually are grouped into a larger team. 
which is interesting as well because then you can share expertise within uh, the team with several PI and also the people behind the PI can uh, you know uh, collaborate and everything. So it's it's um, everything is more uh, mutual, I would say, uh, shared. So equipments are very uh, yeah. everything is very horizontal. I would For say. sure. But that's that goes with the permanent position. I can think of so many ways in which shared labs laboratories like co-PI ships would be so beneficial here. Like think about the robustness of having being able to take a maternity leave for like real and then have your trainees have somebody else that already knows them that's already part of their leadership team like just to take over it seems to me that the US should be thinking about the shared shared PI ship more sort of along mm. those same lines um, so I, I agree. I think it's uh, it makes sense for a certain situation like maternity leave, but also if you want to um, have a more interdisciplinary uh, team. So for instance, that's what we did with uh, Ariski Budawood, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he's a physicist. I'm a biologist. Then you can have a team with the two uh, expertise, and then suddenly you can uh, welcome uh, students in math uh, doing uh, molecular cloning, right? So this is possible because in the team. Everything is there, and it's a bit, uh, again, eclectic, but it's uh, a fertile environment. It's yeah. I mean, I, 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 I totally agree that this is, you know, something that should be super, people should be thinking about, and, it, I, and I absolutely see how it makes you more robust. I also guess when I hear permanent positions and, um, and, uh, and then these tightly integrated teams, I, ask, I really want to know, like, what happens when you have... A, complete asshole on your team um which i mean you know i, I there's so many lovely f people in france there are i think a couple assholes around <laughs> going back to this idea of you know if you have a toxic person in this tightly integrated team it can be disastrous it's, it seems to me i mean maybe maybe that maybe i'm missing something that allows you to work around it but it it can, it can be destructive huh, or disruptive. Uh, it's, so this happens uh, sometimes. So the, the main thing is that if you are in uh, an institute uh, that is working already with a very horizontal uh, way, like where you have a lot of uh, sharing, then everyone that enters the lab will follow that rule, basically. So it's, it's already a filter. Uh, the, the the people who are problematic usually they enter labs where the system is already problematic uh, by essence, in essence in a way where it's, there's a lot of competition between teams that's going to attract people who are super competitive uh, towards you know like uh, dominating and everything this you don't have if you have uh, let's say a policy or a general philosophy of you know making it horizontal uh, if someone has no funding we share the funding uh, we share the equipment we even share the personnel so in this environment, you uh, you sort of filter these kind of people, but I shouldn't be too uh, you know it's it's not always uh, so rosy. Huh? You can have uh, toxic people. Uh, so in the French system, uh, those people they would be uh, offered to move somewhere else. So it's not like it's a permanent position, but it's not. Um, uh, you, you can also be fired. Huh? It's uh, I mean if you really go uh, if if you do uh, sexual harassment or if you do I don't know like uh, just harassment, Image you can be fired, right? image manipulation i mean this kind of thing right so yeah <laughs> it's, there were some cases <laughs> so this can happen uh but but it's um usually i mean for a less dramatic uh, situation uh, people are, are moved or they have to change teams uh there's some uh, psychologists that are involved uh, so it is a whole uh, yeah it's a whole process i guess uh, and in some yeah. ways that's more robust um than a system set up where 
there's like one big PI who is kind of making all the decisions. And if that person is one of these rare assholes, then like, how do you get rid of that? That gets a lot more complicated, I think, with our real hierarchical system. I guess it can be also for uh, for the students and the postdocs. If if you have a multi PI team or a multi PI uh, institute, let's say where where it's more integrated, uh, if there is a problem in a team or if there's a personal problem, then you can even switch teams, right? Much more easily when than if it's really like secluded. So Olivia, you know, we talked a little bit about like structuring, you know, how you structure your groups, structuring groups in France. You know, when you look at our science institutions, what are the other things that when you now that you've sort of taken this lens of robustness and and celebrating inefficiency or, um, <laughs> uh, you know, going at it, take, we're taking a different view of how things are structured. What are the things when you look around that you say we should we should really be doing X in science in our institutions to become more robust? So the first thing for me, it's a very simple one, is to drop the age factor, drop the impact factor. <laughs> so I mean, this is good art law. Eh? Good art law says that when a measure becomes a target, it's not, uh, it's not. How do you say? Fiable? It fails. It fails to be a measure. It's it's something like it, when it went, once the once the measurement becomes a target, it fails to be a valid measurement or something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, exactly. It, it fails to to be a valid measurement. Exactly, exactly. So that, that's good outflow, and uh, so this is really. Uh, everywhere right so it's true in a sp sport competition uh, when there's doping there's uh, you know betting there's uh, money laundering so sport i mean competition sport is toxic because not because of sport but because of competition and in science it's the same the, the minute you have a h factor impact factor all this ranking the shanghai ranking i mean now it's apparently disappearing so but all these rankings what they produce is sloppy science because then you have to go faster, uh, you know, and this is really not the, the spirit. So that's robustness is to go against uh, good outflow and to not focus on the measure. <laughs> so what were you saying about the Shanghai ranking? I don't know what that is. Yeah, yeah. So the, the Shanghai ranking is based on uh, you know number of uh, Nobel Prize uh, publication in the so-called best journals, so Nature, Science, uh, so these kind of uh, items. And so, of course, you have a ranking of universities. Just to take an example where the good outflow uh, can be really counterproductive, I can take the French example, because uh, for a long time, uh, France was not in the top uh, universities. So what our French government uh, decided to do was to merge all the university around Paris in a new university called Paris-Saclay. And they built that university on the best arable lands in the country. So they've been artificializing a land to build a new university. So this is a criminal act, at least in 10, 20 years, we'll, because this is the, the, <laughs> the most precious thing we have, arable land. And so you build a university on arable land that doesn't make any sense. So you, we indeed uh, increased the, the ranking, but we lost the, <laughs> right. the precious land. Yeah. So Olivier, one of the things that we wanted to do on this season was to really take a hard look at what COVID has taught us about how the way we do science should change. As we are quote unquote going back to normal, I say on the day that my daughter's sleepaway camp has COVID exposures, how do we keep the good things that we learned, go back to the good things we had before without 
going back to the bad things we had before and so that's actually it's almost an easy one i think one one thing we learned in covid this is the virtue of being slow so when we there was the confinement we had to stop right so it, it was painful when you know you know you have an extra experiment to do and then you have to stop and just like oh i really want to finish that, that thing but we had to stop to think uh, and so when when you're slow actually you think better huh? you, you interact with more people uh, to somehow i mean you you can bring up you can read more papers and everything so this is already uh, positive and uh, if you push it one step further if really like taking a step back, uh, one possible evolution in the future is to switch from uh, science in the lab to uh, citizen science, meaning that you involve the citizens in some of the questions you ask. So this is much slower, much uh, more inefficient, but it's much more robust for the society because now, I mean, the, the main lesson, I mean, one of the main lessons we got from COVID is the distance between science and society. There was a lot of papers on uh, COVID-19 that were making no sense at all and that were accepted by the journalists or they were discussed on the TV shows. They, I mean, they should not have been discussed at all, right? They were not even scientific. So this distance between the science and the public, the only way we can you know, bring it together is to actually involve the citizens in the science making. This is much slower. This is much more inefficient. It's also more local, so usually it's more difficult to, uh, you know, to to value in a, in a high-ranking journals because it's uh, situated knowledges. But in the end, you add robustness, right, in the in the whole scientific world and in the society as well, right? because now you can deal with science at uh, any level. So maybe that would be my first uh, take on this. Yeah, I like that. We definitely want to think about ways to not go back to the way things were. But it seems like that's happening. So like what you're talking about sounds great, but do you think that's actually something that 10 years from now we're going to look back and say, oh, cool, we actually did start doing all this citizen science and now we've democratized scientific research? Or is it going to be like, well, it was cool, but I still, I, I need, my postdocs need great papers so they can get jobs. So we didn't do that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, no, I, I see that there is a risk, of course, but I, I think I'm, I'm, I would still be optimistic. Yeah. Uh, I can just take one example, is the example of uh, varietal mixture in the field. So that's to oppose to the super efficient uh, monoculture where you uh, remove the fluctuation by uh, adding water, uh, uh, nutrients and uh, pesticides. So that's the super efficient system that is, of course, uh, very negative in many ways. And so when you have a field and instead of growing one um, variety, you, gr you grow three different varieties. So this has been shown in labs that this field becomes more resistant to drought and more resistant to pathogens. So this is just you, so you reduce the yield, but you make the field more uh, autonomous, so more robust yeah. to fluctuations. So this is citizen science. And now, so between uh, 2010 and 2020, uh, in France, the, the surface of wheat as a varietal mixture has really increased. So in certain uh, regions, it's 40% of the surface. And so this is both citizen science and the, the peasants themselves that sort of understood the system, they saw that it works. So I, I think you can't really stop that kind of uh, movement, mm -hmm. right? And especially if the environment is becoming uh, more and more uh, fluctuating, right? With uh, drought, uh, flooding and everything. Did you say peasants? Is that what you meant to say? Yeah. Uh, that that may, has sort of a negative connotation in English. 
I don't know if you might want to. It was farmers that you're really talking about, or no, we can talk about this because uh, there's the same um, thing in France. So we, we you can say uh, farmers or uh, peasants, so agriculteurs et paysans. Uh, but uh, so the, the world the, the word uh, farmer is a word that actually um, started to expand post World War Two. That uh, was supposed to mean that uh, farmers are, you know, uh, uh, higher in the technique uh, ranking. Let's say it's like uh, they, they drive machines, they use uh, chemical components, and so this was supposed to say that you're more independent. But actually, it's just the opposite that happened, right? So they were actually um, slave of an industry. So peasants now, I mean, at least in France, is a compliment. Yeah. So peasants is the word we used before World War II when the farmers were uh, te technically autonomous. And so the, the peasants who are doing varietal mixture that are like, you know, have their own seeds, their own, they manage their own field through agroecology, they want to be called peasants. So it's an interesting shift. <laughs> Smallholder farmers would be maybe the way we would say it in English, like the very, you know, like you have your very small plot of land and you're going to plant multiple crops. You may have animals. It's all one, but it's really, it's not, you're not, you're not really selling to large amounts. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the idea. Yeah. Interesting. Maybe I can comment on something else because this might be a little bit far away from the lab the lab stuff on the lessons from COVID, because I mean, there's one thing that of course we learned from COVID is uh, teleworking, right? I mean, this is much more there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think there's some positive side and negative sides as uh, always. I mean, the, the positive side is of course, uh, if you have just an administrative meeting to do it on Zoom, I think that's perfectly fine instead of, you know, taking a train or a flight or something. So I think that makes, uh, that makes sense. The negative, I mean, the possible negative side, of course, as everyone knows, is that if you meet people in person, a lot more is happening, right? And uh, uh, the richness of the interaction, let's say, <laughs> is much higher when it's uh, in, in person. And so for the science we want to do, it has to be in person. Well, of course, you don't want to always fly everywhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, on this, but um, yeah, it's a balance to find. That's going to be a tricky one. For the I mean, yeah, I do feel like what we need to somehow figure out, and I don't have a perfect answer, is that we we need to do many fewer trips and make those trips so much more impactful. And I feel like we've had this conversation multiple times, you know, especially around conferences and. You know, the, the, so we seem to be going back to, there's a lot of conferences. People are going to end up going to multiple conferences a year and they're going to have talks at the conference that could be remote mm -hmm. and some, but, but there also are going to be these key interactions. And so the, I, 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 I mean, for myself, I have this desire that maybe I will go to two or three conferences a year. One of them, hopefully, is going to be very local, and 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 you know, and those are going to be super meaningful interactions. And then I'm gonna just do the rest some way virtual. Mm. But but because you know my lab is somewhat robust, I have multiple different projects, and so each one of those different projects has sort of the meeting that I should go to. Olivia, don't you you go to just one meeting a year? Isn't that right? So usually, so my new policy, let's say, is to uh, try to group the conferences. So if I go in one place, I, uh, I'm not sure, I shouldn't say I try to do a tour, but that's pretty much the idea. So if I go to, uh, I don't know, uh, 
Japan, for instance. If I go to Japan, that's going to be the only big trip I'm going to do uh, in the year. And if I go to Japan, I'm going to see many universities around. So maybe one conference and over like uh, small trips, uh, seminars uh, here and there. But actually more and more, actually, I, I almost now uh, try not to fly uh, at all. So this year, for instance, I've, I've uh, I've cancelled three conferences because there was some flying involved. <laughs> yeah, right. Because you're planning a conference in Lyon, so that helps with not exactly. Needing travel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. So, Ivan, are you thinking maybe you'll only do one conference a year, or are you still on the fence about that? I, I mean, I am. I don't know. I mean, the 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 big answer is I don't know. I mean, the the so far, I have driven to one conference, and I have. Um, yeah, I've driven to another conference that was 10 minutes away, right? You know, like the two conferences mm -hmm. that I've been to in person, one was a nine-hour drive and, you know, we could carpool and I felt reasonably, com you know, like the, you know, that's not too bad. Uh, and one was in St. Louis. And the other meetings that I would normally go to, I am just not going to. Mm. And I, some of that is just, I wasn't invited to give a talk. You know, maybe if, if, if they had invited me to give a talk, I would totally have gone. Right. Um, but I, I didn't, you know, I didn't have a talk. And I'm not super comfortable with where we're at in terms of where my COVID comfort level is, respectively to clearly more people. Mm. So I'm just not. And that's a luxury and I don't, I'm not on the job market. I you know, like I have a postdoc who um, has gone to, went to a meeting and it was incredibly productive for his career, mm. you know, absolutely the right decision to go. And coming back with COVID, I guess, is the price he pays. Oh my God. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but, but that's the point, actually, you can decide that junior scientists uh, you know, the priority to go to conferences, right? So that could yeah. be the one key. Yeah, but junior scientists frequently say the reason I go to a lot of the conferences is to meet the senior scientists. Mm. And so, I mean, <laughs> and I think coming out of COVID, you know, we, we have all these things, but the real question is, you know, so let's assume, and this is a big assumption, that COVID is going to be less of an issue a year from now. I think that's a... Mm -hmm. a a higher possibility because we will all have gotten it and we will, you know, we'll be building up and we'll just have, continue to have more tools. But it's, there's still the, the, the personal drain in terms of just the, what traveling takes out of you. And more importantly, the, the, the carbon. I honestly feel like we have to figure this out. And I really feel like I'm in the minority and that the, there is enough desire out there in the scientific community that we are kind of going back to the nor going mm -hmm. back to normal quote unquote yeah but, but i mean the the plane tickets are going i mean the price might increase i mean there might be some economic reason for not flying so much i mean i i also see i mean one possibility is the, the reviving the sabbatical right like to really do a long stay uh, somewhere. Uh, Liz, you've done that actually. So it, it's uh, me too in Singapore as well. So I mean, it's, if you if you take a long stay, 
then you really meet the people. It's, a, it's, a, it's another level of interactions, right? Because you really see everyone, you uh, work in the lab. Uh, so of course, you need to have a very autonomous team because you're away. <laughs> but this can develop uh, a very uh, different way. In a way, it's closer to the old way uh, to do science, right? In the, even in the antiquity, where that's what they were doing, right? Uh, like traveling once go to another country, stay there for three years, and then come back, right? So it will probably not be three years, yeah. but a few months. That works great for old people like us. But I think the, mm -hmm. the, the big question is how, as a community, we can think about designing future conferences that give our young trainees the um, exposure and the networking opportunities without blowing our carbon emissions uh, into mm. the stratosphere and um, it's a really complicated and nuanced question but it's interesting I really I'm really interested in people sort of setting their like PIs setting their own boundaries and just being like this is what I feel comfortable doing and then sort of being open about that the um, mechanobiology meeting actually my postdoc will go to and then there's this really cool cell dynamics meeting that's in Crete and I really would love to go to those meetings and just hang out in those beautiful places and see all my friends. And so I do feel like uh, sad about mm. it, but I guess that also made me realize how much of my going to meetings was about personal and social advancement and not really about mm -hmm. the science. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. No, but it's always a mix, right? I do think, I mean, there, there, I mean, and part of it is that we have built up this culture those of us who have made made it as PIs, you have this culture where you see your friends at meetings, and I've you've developed friends, mm, and it's, you know, and yeah. you have these sort of work friends who are not, yeah. you know, who are yeah, and that's you see them at meetings, and so that's your relationship. And the idea that you're not going to go to conferences means you're not going to see your friends. Mm -hmm. And that's true. Yeah, actually, I think that's a really important point. Mm. Uh, so, Olivia, I think there are so many examples, uh, both in in um, the natural world and in the world of scientific discovery, where this uh, robustness versus efficiency trade-off plays out. And it sounds like this uh, article that we're discussing here is just the start of your investigation into this topic, right? Because you have a book coming out. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, right now it's in uh, French. It's called La Troisième Voie du Vivant. So I don't know how you can translate that. It's not the same title in English. Huh? It would be The Third Way uh, of Life. The Third like Way? Is that what you said? <laughs> the Third Way? Yes. Oh, I love that. That's actually one of my personal <laughs> principles is that there's always a third way. Oh, I love that. Yeah, but I, I, I truly think there is. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> And it's a positive one, right? So because the minute you you focus on robustness, then it's a very engaging world, and you sort of leave the world of burnout. So it's much more interesting. Well, we look forward to seeing that when it's tr eventually translated into English, and when we can get it on Amazon <laughs> or your local library, bookstore. Yes, <laughs> your local bookstore. That's right. Okay, Olivia, I. I... I can't think. This was awesome. It was really different perspective and some a lot of stuff to think about for for me and uh, and and hopefully for our listeners. Uh, if people want to continue this conversation with you, how how should they get in touch with you? 
So thank you for having me again. And uh, yes, so you can get in touch with me through email. I think that's probably the, the easiest. So I don't have a Twitter account, so it's going to be my email. Uh, and my email is uh, olivier.amant, H-A-M-A-N-T, <laughs> at ens-lyon.fr. <laughs> and Liz, how can people get in touch with you? You can always find me on Twitter at, at ehaswell. Would that be at E as well? Yes, at E as well. If the, in the French, but yes. <laughs> and uh, you can reach me on Twitter at Baxter Twee, that's T-W-I. And you can reach the podcast at, at Taproot Podcast. So with that, Olivier, thank you again. This was fantastic. Thank you very much. Taproot is brought to you by the American Society of Plant Biologists and the Plante website. It is co-hosted and edited by Ivan Baxter and Liz Haswell. Transcripts are by Joe Stormer. If you like this episode, tell your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes or in your podcast player of choice. Thanks for listening, and we'll bring you another story behind the science next week.